glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Exodus chapter 27. Would you stand with me uh, in reverence for God's word as we read verses 9 through 19. We'll read. The Bible says, And thou shalt make a court of the tabernacle... For the south side southward there shall be hangings for the court of fine twined linen of an hundred cubits long for one side, and the twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass, uh, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver, and likewise for the north side in length there shall be hangings of an hundred cubits long, and his twenty pillars and their, sh- their twenty sockets of brass, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver." And for the breadth of the court on the west side should be hangings of 50 cubits, their pillars 10 and their sockets 10, and the breadth of the court on the east side eastward shall be 50 cubits. The hangings of one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, and their pillars 3, and their sockets 3. And on the side shall be hangings 15 cubits, their pillars 3, and their sockets 3. Uh, and for the gate for the court uh, shall be a hanging of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet, and fine twine linen wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four, and their sockets four, and the pillars round about the court shall be filleted with silver, uh, their hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of brass. The length of the court shall be an hundred cubits, and the breadth fifty everywhere, and the height five cubits of fine twine linen, and their sockets of brass. All the vessels of the tabernacle, and all the service thereof, and all the pins thereof, and all the pins of the court shall be of brass. Thank you. You may be seated. How many times perhaps have we read a text like this and by the time you're done it's, how can I stay awake as I read the construction details of the tabernacle? And again, there's many hopes that maybe next time we'll not do that. You can can laugh at me. I, I make fun of people who read dictionaries for fun, right? Right, Riley? Absolutely. Um, because I think, why would you do that? One, one of my favorite books of the Bible to read has become the book of Numbers. I like reading the book of Numbers. You say, you're crazy. Well, number one, there are neat stories, accounts interspersed through the book of Numbers. But on top of that, if you and I will pay attention to these numbers that God records, you'll find that God is a God of order. God is a God that doesn't miss details. And yet, in all of that, he is gracious and merciful. But when you look, one of the things I've enjoyed doing in the book of Numbers is comparing the number of people that came out of Egypt with the number at 20, uh, 40 years later and how God maintained their numbers throughout that time. I'm just saying, the Bible is full of rich things. And here, we're simply reading about the construction of the court of the tabernacle and it's, you know, it's wood overlaid with silver and brass sockets and you kind of read it and go what is all of this but if you can get a picture in your mind of the tabernacle let's walk through the construction of the tabernacle from inside out so we get the clear picture that god is giving us when you come in through what gate is described here uh, as 20 cubits broad in case you got 15 cubits of fence if you would these hangings form a fence around the tabernacle the court so it's a hundred cubits long 
That's going to be about 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. Uh, you're looking at about seven and a half feet high is this fence that God said, because a cubit is a foot and a half, basically. So that's surrounding this tabernacle. Once you go through that 20 cubit gate, you know, if you know about the tabernacle, the first thing you come to is the brazen altar. The first scene you're going to have, and we dealt with this a little bit last week, as you walk through that 20 cubit gate, you're going to have an altar there where animals are being sacrificed. You're going to have an altar there that's made completely out of brass. Unlike the altar of incense that's wood overlaid with gold, this altar is made of brass. And so uh, this altar is big enough to, to put a bullock or a lamb or a sheep or a goat on, and the priest would come there. You had all the Levitical priests could minister in, the, in that uh, what's called the holy place. So you have the outer court and you come in the holy place where, or excuse me, the outer court where there's the, the, uh, the, the brazen altar where the first thing you see is a brazen altar where animals can be slain. It is there that the priest would lay their hands on the head of a bullock and confess the sins of the people, slit its throat, shed its blood, burn it on the altar. The burnt offering and the peace offerings and the thanksgiving offerings and the free will offerings, all offerings to God were made there and there had to be bloodshed because man is sinful. So the first thing you come through that gate you've got to deal with is I've offended God and it results in death and shed blood. There are those that say that we can approach God without addressing the consequence of sin called death. If you're going to approach God, the first thing you have to address is that my sin has caused death. And specifically, when you come to that brazen altar and you see a lamb on there, it should make us think of the lamb of God. And we'll preach, God willing, next week about the brazen altar. You go beyond the brazen altar, and then there's a laver made of brass. A lot of brass here. And the looking glasses of the women, to where you could look in there and look at yourself, and that laver is filled with water, and you could go, and the priests could go there before they would go on into the holy place in the inner court. They could wash and cleanse. Their, their sin has been atoned for, if you would, by picture and type. And now they're going to practically clean up themselves before they go serve God. You walk through into the inner court, the holy place, and on your right would be a table of showbread, where there's bread there, unleavened bread, and then right in front of you would be an altar where good-smelling incense was burning all the time. And on your left, the, what we, we call today the menorah, the seven-fold candlestick on your left, those lights were constantly burning with olive oil. And then right behind that was another piece. It's called the veil. And the veil was so thick that you could not tear it or rend it. Only God could, and He did. Beyond the veil was the, uh, the, the, uh, the mercy seat on the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant where there were certain things kept in there, the Ten Commandments and so forth, remind of the faithfulness of God. So beyond the veil is where the presence of God would come. When man approached, the high priest would enter once a year, and when God would come, he would, his presence would be manifest inside what's called the Holy of Holies, behind that veil, at the mercy seat. So what you see all along as you come through each, the brazen altar, the laver, all these implements, you're getting ever closer to who? The very presence of God. If you were to jump over the fence, you die. You had to approach the way God provided or you don't approach at all. We understand not every tribe could approach. God chose the tribe of Levi to represent everybody else. A picture of the mediatorial work of Christ on our behalf. Not everybody could go beyond the veil. Only one man could go beyond the veil, the high priest. And he could only go after he'd offered for his own sins. Now, Jesus Christ did not have to offer for his own sins. He had no sins to offer for. So as we walk through, you'll see this. So 
inside that tabernacle, and there's coverings. And uh, the wonderful thing, I may have mentioned this last week, if you're inside, it's blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, and there's cherubims woven with needlework. If you were inside the holy place, it would be one of the most beautiful places you've ever seen. There's gold, there's silver, there's light burning. There is beautiful tapestry above you. The veil is made of the same material. If you were outside, you're going to see blood and smell smoke. The closer you got to the Holy of Holies, the more beautiful it smelled, the more beautiful it looked. The Bible talks in the Scripture about the beauty of holiness. May I put it to you this way? Men that are at odds with God look at God and say, why would you want anything to do with Him? They see Jesus Christ as, what a what a drab life to live, a life of, of, of Christianity. What a, All they see Christ as is badger skins and white fine linen hanging in a fence that keeps them on the outside. But if you have been washed in the blood of Christ, washed by the water of the word, offering the incense of prayer and eating the bread of life and living in the light of God's word, gone through the veil of the flesh of Jesus Christ, the closer you get to God, the sweeter he becomes. It's the truth of it. How many know this? You've ever known somebody, and the more you knew them, the more you wish you didn't. (laughs) I hear all the laughter. (laughs) That'll never happen with the Lord. I can promise you on the Word of God and by personal experience, you will not come to know the Lord. Some say, well, the better I've known God. No, no, no. The closer you get to the Lord, the sweeter He becomes. And might I say, the tabernacle shows us The way of entrance to God, the way of fellowship to God in every piece speaks of Jesus Christ. The light of the world, the bread of life, the mediator between God and men. So today, having said all that, where we're at, if you're looking at the tabernacle in your mind's eye, you've got this drab-looking, badger-skin-covered structure that, if I'm not mistaken, was 45 feet high, surrounded by a a 7.5-foot white fence. One on the outside, it's fine-twined linen. Okay? And so I'll give us three things today about those hangings around the outer court. They formed a court uh, that separated where God was from where man was. There are tents of all the children of Israel. Uh, uh, if you read the book of Numbers, it tells us where every tribe was to encamp. Every tribe encamped in a certain locale related to where the tabernacle was. The tabernacle was the center of the Israelite camp. And everyone else's camps were arranged around that. There was order for how they would move and how they would not, who would pack the tabernacle up and how it would be moved. We'll not get into all that, but if you were to look in on this camp, you'd see this drab-looking tall structure surrounded by hangings of fine twine linen and all the camp of the Israelite around that. So as we approach that fence, let's see a few things about it. Let's consider, first of all, if we go back and read verse 9 again, Thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle for the south side southward, there should be hangings for the court of fine twine linen of a hundred cubits long for one side and the twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver and likewise for the north side in length there should be hangings of a hundred cubits long and his twenty pillars and their twenty sockets of brass. Uh, the hooks of the pillars and their sil- uh, fillets of silver and of the, for the breadth of the court on the west side should be hangings of 50 cubits, their pillars 10 and their sockets 10. And the breadth of the court on the east side eastward should be 50 cubits. The hangings of one side of the gate should be 15 cubits, their, should, their pillars 3 and their sockets 3. 
and on the uh, uh, other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits, their pillars three and their sockets three, and it explains the gate, which we'll get to in a few minutes. And for the court of the gate shall be an hanging of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen. I want to see, first of all, the purpose of these hangings. I've, I've described it as a fence because that's what its purpose was. You have these pillars that stand upright, and upon that there are, are, are sockets and fillets, as I understand, a way to attach the poles to one another. And so on those sockets of brass, you would hang almost, in my mind's eye, like you would a shower curtain. You're going to hang this curtain of fine twine linen, but I don't want to get so hung up in the details we missed the purpose. The purpose of the hangings was to give definition. The purpose of the hangings was to give definition. Though the eyes of the Lord are in every place, no God is in every place, God is not approached as we approach another man. God is, is who He is, and when God decided to come and dwell with man, in the Old Testament, God came to a specific place at a specific time through a specific set of circumstances. Uh, and so when He had the tabernacle pitched, the whole purpose was that God would come down in the form of a tabernacle, and man had to meet God at that definite place. So the general idea that whoever you are, wherever you are, if you want God, you can have Him, just approach Him. No, God must be approached specifically. That fence quadranted off said, you know what? God is going to come and meet with you here in this place. Inside this, this cord of 50 cubits by 100 cubits, there was a purpose of saying, outside of that, God will not go. Inside of this, you'll meet Him. That tabernacle pictured, as we have said repeatedly, a person. No person can just say, I want to know God. No, God became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know what? This fence defined a place inside of which you could come and meet God. But that fence formed a separation. Outside of this was mere man. Inside is where God would come. Outside of Christ, you'll never know God. God came in the person of Jesus Christ, and He is definable. Can we know this? Jesus of the Bible is a definable person. I was asked a question the other day. It was very interesting because I made a statement along these lines a few weeks ago. Is the God of Judaism today the same? So does the, the, the Jews of today who practice Judaism, do they worship the same God as Christians? And the answer is no. I read this morning in my Bible reading, He that hateth the Son hateth also the Father. Current Judaism rejects Jesus Christ as a fraud, treats him with hatred. You say, are they not God's chosen people? Yes, but they do not worship the same God. How do you say that? Because they rejected the tabernacle. The hangings of the court was to form a place of definition to say, sinners camp here, but the holy God will be met with here. Now, the Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. That hangings of that, the hangings of that court formed a, a line of definition to say God must be met inside of these boundaries. That makes sense? And it's not, a, it's not, it's the boundaries, yes, created by the law. How many of you understand this? The boundaries created by God's law is if you're going to meet God, you must meet His criteria of righteousness. If you're going to keep the law, you must live by the law, the Bible says. We've been dealing with that in Galatians on Thursday night. If you're going to be redeemed by good works, then how many commandments must you keep? 
All of them. If we offend in one point, James tells us we're guilty of all. So God's law sets up a definition. You've got to be righteous to meet with God. And that's, we'll get into a few minutes, some of the symbolism in that hanging that's around the court. But we know that only one person has fulfilled the righteousness of the law. Jesus said, think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Matthew 5, 19. He came to fulfill the law, meaning he is the only one inside of the boundaries where God is willing to meet with man inside of perfect holiness. So the, for, the purpose of the hangings was to say, this is the place you have to meet God. It formed a distinct separation between God and man uh, that says God who is holy is on the inside. Man who is unholy is on the outside. So the purpose of the hangings is definition. This is where God will be met. Separation. The Bible tells us of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews that he was holy, harmless, separate from sinners. Now we understand that he was in all points tempted like as we are. So he was like us in the sense that he knew our temptations. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, and there's three key words, yet without sin. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 17, turn with me if you would over there. Acts chapter 17, I'm trying to go somewhere this morning and understand that there was a fence put up around the tabernacle to show you you cannot just approach God on your own. God is holy God must be approached on his terms. Man is not God and God is not man in the sense of we are marked by sin. But God became man or tabernacled with man so that we could approach him but not outside of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 17 verse 30. The Bible says, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men, every, all men everywhere to repent. Verse 31. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. Notice this term. By that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. So, what is the measure of judgment that we'll be judged by on judgment day? Some would say this. You take all the bad things you've done, and if God sees that you have now done more good than bad, he'll measure your good things against your bad things, meaning your good person is measured against your bad one. No, the measure of God's judgment is Jesus Christ. We'll be judged by that man, meaning he will be the one doing judgment and he is the measure of judgment. So here's how you can know if you are righteous enough to approach into the very presence of God or if you're fenced on the outside. Are you as righteous as Jesus Christ? Please don't miss me this morning. This may be the most important point this morning. The only way you are righteous enough to go to heaven is if you are as righteous as Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter in. They were the most righteous people those disciples knew. And he said, they are not righteous enough. Titus 3, 5 says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. My point is this. You know what the fence was? It was to keep man out. It was to say, you are not as holy as God. And that's why the fence was constructed as it was. The fence was there to give definition. God is on the inside. Man is on the outside. It forms separation. God is on the inside. Man is on the outside. God is holy. Man is not. And we'll be judged again by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It created... Uh, uh, an exclusive way of approaching God. 
You'll notice the construction of the fence was uh, around the tabernacle was this. A hundred cubits on the south, a hundred cubits on the north, fifty cubits on the west. How many gates did God provide? Only one. Only one. And that gate was facing toward the east. You could talk about the significance of that. But the purpose of the hangings was to, to create some definition. God's on the inside, you're on the out. Separation, God's on the inside, you're on the out. Exclusion, you cannot just come any way you want. You've got to come the way God has provided through the gate. And if you're going to come through the gate, the first thing you're going to meet is that brazen bloody altar. And so then that's the purpose of the hangings. Number two, in all of this, you can see the precision of these hangings. Notice the materials that they are constructed with. Uh, for those Bible students here this morning, throughout the Bible, whether Old or New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, what does fine linen always speak of? And God gives this step. This, we don't have to make this up. In Revelation, the Bible says the white linen was the what? The righteousness of the saints. Fine linen is a picture of righteousness. Again, you can check it. I didn't write the reference down. The book of Revelation tells us, I believe it's chapter 13, chapter 14 maybe, that the linen was the righteousness of the saints. White linen uh, being, being a picture of righteousness. Our Lord Jesus Christ clothed in white. This fence was white picturing righteousness. You know what it is that keeps man out away from God? Our unrighteousness puts us on the outside. It should be so clear that God could not be approached and that, that fence of white that was hung there on those pillars of wood and overlaid with gold. And I'll say something about those in a minute. God was very precise. The outside fence is to be a fine twined linen. The gate was a very colorful gate. It was beautiful. We'll say more about that. It was blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen all interwoven. But the fence that kept man on the outside was the righteousness of God. And we must get that clear today. What man does when he says, you know what? I can work my way to God or uh, I can, uh, God knows my heart. They'll say something like that. Let's look, if you would, very quickly at Isaiah chapter 59. We'll go to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 59. I'll give you a number of, of scripture references here to show us that this white fence around the tabernacle pictures the separation created between us and God. God specifically chose materials to portray to us your unrighteousness and my righteousness is what is what has caused the separation between me and you. And so the, there's very precision in these materials and the selection made. Isaiah 59 verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. That verse is pretty clear, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, we're very familiar with. Isaiah 64, verse 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as fine twine linen, filthy rags. I'm going to stop and pause here for just a moment and say, what I believe needs to be said, especially dealing with people. If, if we're dealing with someone out there, you know, as an unbeliever, I don't know about you. If you've heard the gospel, believe the gospel, you have to wonder, why don't more people get saved? You know, the disciples said, are there few to be saved? Let me ask you something. If you're being told that the best you've ever done to God is filth, what does that offend in us? Pride. I don't know in my own life, I don't know of anything 
that, that tends to stymie spiritual progress more than the wretched sin of pride. And I certainly don't know of any sin more that will keep men out of heaven and lead them on to hell than pride. And an inability to admit, I am not good enough for God. So you know what happens often? People get mad at God for this. Why don't we get mad at ourselves for being wretched, rotten sinners who would be mad at a holy God who's never lied, never sinned, never done anything to hurt anyone? It's our choices. It's our adversary, the devil, that rebelled. God is good. God is always good. And what ought to happen, we say and understand that God says, your righteousness is, is as filthy rags. We ought to quickly say, boy, you know me really well. The honest soul will say so. It takes a deceitful heart to defend one's own righteousness. Even when I do right, you know what I often find? I'm talking about my natural person. I'm talking about when I'm walking with the Lord. But I'm talking about my natural self. I find that behind that right deed is I hope somebody noticed. Is that not what the Pharisees did? It's praying righteous, but praying to be seen of men is wicked. Fasting is righteous. It's a good thing to do. But fasting to be seen of men is wicked. Eh, going to church is a righteous thing, but going to maintain your social standing is wicked. <laughs> what are you preaching about this morning? There was a white fence around the tabernacle saying, unless you are white, you can't come inside. It bars us out. The righteousness of God, spelled out through the law of God, did not make a way for man in his own way. What it said is, you can only come the way I've provided, or you can't come. And so the, the fence that was around was exclusive and it's white linen because, as Isaiah 64, 6 says, we are all, and that's the, the writer of the book is including himself. You know what Isaiah said in chapter 6 when he got a glimpse of God? He didn't say, woe is them. He said, woe is me. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you said, woe is me? When was the last time we, we, gave, we, we, we said, we felt about ourselves? like you feel like about somebody out there. I cannot believe what I am before a holy God. I'll tell you what would fix America if we'd spend more time with God than we do in so many other places. We'd spend more time under the, the sound of the Bible and more time in prayer and more time under preaching of God's Word and less time impressing ourselves with who we are and being impressed with who He is. That would fix our wicked woes because it'd bring us to repentance. We have no greater need. Not repentance out there, repentance in the walls of this building this morning. Judgment must begin at the house of God. It doesn't begin in the culture. It doesn't begin at the gay marches. It begins in the pew. Amen. So what are you angry about? I'm not. I would hope I'm stirred up for our Lord. You know what? God is good this morning. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You say, Pastor, that's Old Testament. Okay, let's try the new. First Corinthians chapter 6. We were here just a couple of weeks ago. First Corinthians chapter 6. Talking about the righteousness of God versus the unrighteousness of men. And the hangings of the outer court were fine twine linen. They're pure white to picture. Unless you are like the fence, you can't come in. It barred man out and only made one way of entry. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
nor extortioner shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And we were defiled before, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, if you would, Revelation chapter 21. We know these verses. I just want us to see the truth that's portrayed by the fence around the tabernacle is the truth we read about right here in the book of Revelation regarding the holy city. You have to be white and clean to enter in. And you and I in our own natural state are not white and clean. The Bible says in Revelation 21 verse 6, verse 7, uh, let's go back to verse 6, And he said unto me, It is done, I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, all right, we're going to get our list, the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars to have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death. Verse 14, Revelation 20. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he talked with me, so on and so forth. Uh, I'm in 21. 20, verse 14. Excuse me, 20, verse 14. Death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. Uh, This is the second death. The Bible tells us repeatedly that the liars and the fornicators and the whoremongers, all the things that defile man. You can look at another list in Ephesians chapter 5. You could look at yet another list in Mark chapter 7 of the sins that characterize mankind that you will not find in heaven. God is holy. How many of us know that in order to save man, God does not become defiled so that we can have fellowship. He makes man righteous. We can have fellowship. The so-called gospel today is God has torn down the walls of righteousness that separate God and man. God now doesn't get offended at your sin. He takes you as you are. That's not the gospel of the scriptures. God changes you and makes you what he wants you to be to make you fit for entry. The parable of many are called but few are chosen. You remember the man that came and didn't have a wedding garment? What happened to him? God said, well, I just love everybody anyway. Come on in. Is that what happened? He said, you have a wedding garment, cast him out. Meaning, to enter heaven, you and I must be white and clean. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs, who can say I've made my heart clean, I'm pure from my sin? Any takers this morning? How many of you have yet self-justified? The only way to self-justify is through deceit. And we'll say that again. The only way for a man to justify himself with God is through deceit. Who was it? It was the lawyers and the Pharisees that they justified themselves rather than God. When God said, you're sinners who need a Savior, the one man said, Lord, Lord, um, who then is my neighbor? When Jesus said, you know the commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors myself, he willing to justify himself. So who then is my neighbor? Meaning he knew he didn't love his neighbor and he's in violation of the law. But instead of saying, God has spoken, I'm a sinner, he said, I think I'm out on a detail. <laughs> I think I, I get out on a, a little loophole. No, the righteousness of God is seen in the precise materials used in that construction. But aren't you glad that the only thing we have on that wall is not just fine, white, uh, uh, fine twine linen? If we go back to Exodus 27, Exodus chapter 27, it was fine twine linen, but that fine twine linen was hanging on pillars. Have we noticed the construction of the pillars? It was shittim wood, which was what the wood was used throughout the tabernacle, but it was overlaid with 
gold. So if I asked you, are the pillars made of wood or gold, what would you say? How I many you know what happens when you overlay wood with gold? They become one. Does this sound familiar? The wood pictures humanity, earthly things. Gold in heaven, streets are paved with it. Gold always throughout the New Testament, we can either build with wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. The wood is that which can be consumed. It speaks of humanity. It speaks of that which is under the curse. The gold speaks of that which is eternal, symbolic. Now, what were the, the pillars, wood or gold? Help me now. The answer is yes. Who is Jesus, God or man? Yes. You realize the righteousness of God hangs on the person of Jesus Christ. That fine twine linen was supported by pillars that didn't move. They were in sockets of what? Silver. Silver, again, speaks of that which is of eternal value, that which is precious, that which doesn't fade away, so on and so forth. Symbolic. So there's sockets of silver. There were, there were or excuse me, sockets of brass. There was these tenons, if you would, that they would set the pillars in. They were made of silver, but the sockets of brass, brass throughout the Bible speaks of judgment. The serpent on the pole was made of? Brass. Throughout the Bible, brass is God's judgment. The altar where the, the lambs and the bullocks were slain was made of brass, that righteous fine linen, the picture's righteousness, hanging on the pillars of wood and gold. <laughs> the picture of Jesus Christ had sockets of brass, meaning God is going to deal with the judgment of man because of our unrighteousness, and He would do so through the person of Jesus Christ. And all that fence is symbolic of our Savior the, the pillars of wood and gold at the same time, speaking of Jesus being fully God and fully man. The brass speaking of the judgment of God. God will, He will not excuse sin for our sake. He's no respecter of persons, but the righteousness of God is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There's nothing about God that is not in the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing in the person of Jesus Christ is not God. He is God in the flesh. And so then the precision materials made and the message given. If you study these materials as we go around, you have those pillars of wood and gold and the, 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 the sockets of brass and the silver that is used, all speaking of the eternal nature of God and the eternal life He brings to offer through judgment and righteousness. And then we come around and there's just but one gate. We're dealing with the very fact that that brings us to our third point, and that's the portal. God did not put a gate on every side. He didn't put a gate on the south and a gate on the north and a gate on the, on, the, on the west and a gate on the east. Jesus said, I am the way, John 14, 6, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And as you work your way around that tabernacle, maybe you lived on the south side and you say, you know what, I want to go visit with God today. Sorry, you're going to have to move. God's not going to move. He's the same. You're going to have to come to God, God's way, through His way of access, through the one door. What's interesting is when you get to that gate, Verse 16, and for the gate of the court shall be an hanging of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen. Now, I won't run the typology. I've read some that say the blue speaks of heaven, and you could say what all it speaks of. We do know the fine twine linen speaks of the righteousness of God. We do know that the scarlet can speak of the sinfulness of man. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. In here you have the picture of the sinfulness of man and the righteousness of God dealt with all in one place. 
You have the blue that does speak of, of the heavens and the royalty and the purple, the, the royal deity and the, the kingliness of Jesus Christ, the, uh, the fact that he is, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that gate is undoubtedly a picture of Jesus Christ. It's the one gate that gives you entrance to the presence of God. And it's in blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen. It's all put together into one curtain. You realize the entire tabernacle, the white linen speaks of Jesus Christ, the pillars speak of Jesus Christ, the brass uh, sockets speak of Jesus Christ, and above all, that gate speaks of Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting? As you move your way inside the tabernacle and you're in the very presence of God, if you looked up, my understanding is you'd see blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, meaning what you see in the gate is the same thing you see in the very presence of God because they're one. Jesus Christ is our only access to God. I'll give you Acts 4.12 again. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none of the name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What we find about the portal is that it's singular. Again, we can't overemphasize that. God has created one way, has provided one way for man to come to him. And that is through the person of Jesus Christ who came down from heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords but took upon in the form of a servant being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As you come to that gate and come through that gate, again, you're going to approach the altar where the scarlet nature of our sin, by the way, that scarlet thread, a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ, again, Though your sins be as scarlet, Isaiah 1 says, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The typology of the scarlet color of our sin being dealt with, all of that is dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ. And you have four different materials woven into one here. If you read the four Gospels, you're going to read of one person. I think it's very interesting. An author pointed out these colors are almost... I wouldn't force the typology, but they're almost a perfect picture of the four Gospels. Matthew dealing with the royal nature of Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings. Matthew is a kingdom gospel. Mark is Jesus Christ, the servant who came and became a man, took on humanity. You could deal with that in the red. Luke deals with the humanity of Christ as the Son of Man, and John is the very Son of God. And You have four Gospels, but they form and tell of one person, and on and on and on we could go with the symbolism of Jesus Christ. You realize this, our unrighteousness puts us outside of the presence of God. There is no sin in God, no iniquity in Him. And yet God has made a way, but it's only one way to approach Him, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. Such beautiful character in the person of Jesus Christ, both God and both man, dealing with the sin of man, and yet imparting the righteousness of God. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. May I say this, the gospel is not something that a bunch of disgruntled disciples came up with a couple of thousand years ago to try to redeem their faith in a a dead Savior. The gospel is the message of heaven to earth from eternity past, and it will always be true. God has always only had one way of man's redemption. And if we look at the tabernacle, we realize what God had in mind. He wanted man to approach him. He wanted fellowship restored. He wanted our unrighteousness dealt with. But he said, if you're going to come to me, you've got to come through one gate, one door, because every other way, my righteousness excludes you. And only if you come through that brazen altar and deal with your sins correctly, and only, by the way, can Jesus Christ deal with our sins correctly. We are washed, as Revelation 1.5 says, washed from our sins in his blood. I don't know about you this morning, but as we continue to work our way through the tabernacle, 
we can see, we can see God's plan of salvation has always been the same. It's always been invested in one person. So you say, what's the conclusion? If your faith is resting on the person of Jesus Christ, what needs you to fear? If you've put your faith in his blood, he's promised you have forgiveness of sins through faith in his blood. You ought to rest. Come unto him and rest. God's way is through faith in him. If you're here this morning and you're counting on yourself being good enough to approach to God, I'll I'll redeem myself. No, no, no. All our righteousnesses are filthy rags. Only one can redeem you. Only one can make you fit. God has only provided one portal to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. One portal whereby you can even approach to God. Only, but you know this? You got to go through that gate before you get to the altar, and you got to go through the altar before you can have the washing of the word, and you got to go through that before you can partake of the bread that'll satisfy your soul and the light that'll give you direction and the prayers that'll be answered. It's all through that gate, Jesus Christ. He said in John 10, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he should be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. But if you say, you know what? I hear all this faith in Jesus Christ is the only way. And the next thing you say is, but may I encourage you strongly. Back up. God's way of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. He's the only door of salvation that can unite God with man, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That gate that God provided, just like the rest, very specific in God's material so that he could portray the character of his own son and show us that the only way to approach in the very presence of God is through the person of Jesus Christ. As we walk through, again, we'll see God has taken time in the New Testament to articulate how the altar tells of God's salvation and how these various instruments, including the veil itself, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we walk our way through, if you're saved, you know what it should do? I would hope solidify your faith in the Word of God, in, the way, in God's gospel. And if you're not here this morning, you're, if your faith, as far as reconciliation, how many of us are term, familiar with the term reconciliation? It's something that often we only hear in a court and gets botched up. God wants reconciliation. We have offended Him. And what God says, I have provided a way for your transgressions to be removed. You must put your faith in my son, in his righteousness. Outside of that, no approaching. So it says, I'm going to heaven when I die. Based on faith in who? Jesus Christ or me? And this morning, if it's not in Christ, it's misplaced. Mm-hmm.